0: The truth is, uh, unfashionable these days. If you open up the world like a lemon, not everyone can drink the juice without wincing.
1: Here my favourite moves are looks, down, back up, you're still there. Blink once for yes, twice for yes please.
2: Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, a podcast where if you kiss us we turn back into a frog. We've assembled some of the finest poets the UK has to offer and asked them to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy stories they want to pass down the generations, stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and joining me today are the fabulous Vanessa Casule and Jack Bigglestone. Hello, guys. Hello. Hi. Vanessa Casule is a writer and performer based in Bristol. She has won over 10 slam titles and been featured on BBC iPlayer, Radio 1 and Radio 4's Woman's Hour and TEDx. She's been invited to perform all over the world from Belgium to Brazil to Bangladesh. Her poem on the historic toppling of Edward Colston's statue, Hollow, gained over 700,000 views. She has two poetry collections published by Burning Eye Books and her work was highly commended in the Forward Poetry Prize Anthology 2019. She was the Bristol City Poet for 2018 to 2020. Jack Bigglestone is a writer and reader from rural Shropshire. He's been published in We Were Always Here, a queer words anthology. In New Writing Scotland, a queer anthology of healing and elsewhere, as well as being listed for the Show Me Yours prize for sex writing and the Live Canon prize. You can follow him on Twitter at Jack bigglestone. Jack, would you like to tell us what story you've rewritten?
1: So I've chosen the basilisk, which is less a story, I guess, and more of a figure. Mm. It's a monster that you might have seen in some blockbuster movies, uh, but which has been around for millennia at this point. And it's an interesting beast. It's kind of difficult to pin down. You see different representations of it where sometimes it's a giant snake, sometimes it's half snake, half cockerel, Legends and stories about it pop up across the world, mostly to do with its ability to kill people with its gaze.
2: Fabulous. That would take it away in your own time.
1: Snakeskin. Prince. First sight or sight second, Prince saw most ancient artistry. Hand stencils flurry across stone ochre spray each stamp says yes i am shows yes i was prince saw on still water shined obsidian polished bronze coated glass slips nose lips Eye sees eye. prince saw distortion despair unseemly skin cracked carapace symposium philosophers said know thyself easy wrestled gymnasia poses into quartz ideals prince saw stone biceps squatting statuary shape of heroes and chorus recognize villains mask they hiss outcast shelter in the archives shade unusual mosaic of stock tessera piecemeal beast called basilisk transcribed as prince shining crest but dressed in shame hybrid specimen called calcatrix glossed as stalker sharp eye disgusting sight strange to perceive punish the scene Luca. Following along the walk home was a tickle behind my ear, a mutter and a nudge smirking at the edge of my vision, like the notification flash I ignore from Mr. Discreet, only named by a crown, worming his attention into my bedroom. Emoji eyes that ask for pics, that want to watch as the work drag I've worn all day drops off me. Every cheers man said falls down and hits the ground dead. I slink free and start to get ready, laying out paint, powder, sacrificial lamb, as I will it, so shall it be, a call going out to any 90s movie glamour idol, bring this look together. In the dusk, my mirror and me, we have a good thing going, I show him what I want to see and his head nods, affirmation, as the glitter screams, I've got cheekbones and I'm not afraid to use them so let us appraise the collected styles and skins hanging in the closet the nature boy home knit the floral femme cosy slouch or peach tight into black lace and straps make me the dark wrapped focus of the night Prints or magazines, posters, ads, and sponsors, cinema haze, TV kiss, tasteful sex, close up shot, everywhere surfaces, contextless faces, confusing realism. Such increase of appearance, delicious, extreme, consumed and digested, leaves us unsatisfied, twisting against ourselves. Luca. As I try to strut down here on Easy Street, some faces turn sour, a disgusted mouth spitting out, what do you think you're looking at? And like Cinderella clocked at twelve, I could unravel, a spook in human rags, ghosted and dropped in the uncanny valley, kicked to the curb, I mean kicked, in the cold splash of a spotlight, I've been measured and found faggot. But armed with bracelets, rings and chains, Glass jewels and false stones shining, I spin and dazzle. Rebounding light, reflections glancing off my scaled silver and looking like some star my childhood had never seen. From out through the light beams and pumped haze, gazes reach towards me as I turn and scan outlines. My pocket buzzing on the digital grid of profiles, old and new networks of undercover desire that float me as I dance. Here my favourite moves are looks, down, back up, you're still there, blink once for yes, twice for yes please. And if in that magic moment our eyes catch, a tunnel opens, pupils widen to swallow all I'm serving and seeing, the recognition that we both arrived in stunning time, to this point formed in our own glorious image. Prince Succeeds from flesh, shivers off skin, spins self in cyberspace passing as virus subversing the distance grasp past the close, whisper across the void, trace contacts search history, prince sees thousand screens a second surveillance, campsite ceaseless scroll, every pockets a peep show, polished pixels suggested poison five stars, prince says cash your views, spare no expense, influence, Commercial communities, express with tags, list personals, trust textbooks, slushy precision, icons seep speech, like this, like this, like this. Luca. In the bathroom, it's slippery still. Someone's punched the mirror, angry at the image only they saw, about faced, hair parted backward. But I don't mind myself in pieces rather than a convincing whole. Multiplied side-eyes glinting amid the shatter like someone watches from behind, waits for the big reveal. I review selfies, stroke down the feed of other faces, green-eyed and complimentary. Prince sends snake emoji, winks. He thinks he's big, hungry behind the screen and always asking for more. Prince says, undress, impress. I realise too late my vogue moment over the sink, pouting, push-up ass has been fed to the mainstream. Here there be monsters. Here there be high school gorgons. Work colleagues. The dread army of aunts and uncles who comment, You always were a one, so brave. Prince messages, chasing tail, sliding circles, fast pulse. And I could just die. Turn me to stone and stand me in the British Museum For a millennium of schoolchildren to pass by, laughing Prince is close, is soon, once reprise, craves reciprocity Can't I get past the feeling, like an empty mirror, once looking in And the blank phone pulls me back, Prince draws endless spiral Ouroboros, escaping desire People pulling themselves together, up the steps to the street Who will be shy tomorrow as the Fantasia starts to fade? What felt like a glimpse of my sublime but shifting reflection? How to hold those pieces together in one hand? Keep something shining for myself. Prince says show me, show me like this.
2: Thank you, that was beautiful. i love to know what it was about the basilisk this beast that can kill with a single
1: look uh, that appealed to you it first started when I saw a, a mention of it um, in a book of folklore and it talked about a warrior being sent out to defeat it and being coated in this armor of mirrors which was at first just such a resonant and strange image and which seemed to speak to me about This peculiar mix of wanting to be seen, being covered in something so decorative, but also wanting to reflect that gaze, wanting to somehow protect yourself from being seen, both happening at the same time. And to me, that felt very relevant in a queer context where we want to signal ourselves, signal some aspect of our identity to a community where we want to even create ourselves visually but we also have fears of how that might bring this this violence this violent way of being seen how that might draw itself onto us
2: Mm. so tell me more about Luca and Prince and the kind of back and forth between them that sort of breaks down at the end
1: yeah I think I definitely wanted to give the basilisk a voice. I was interested in the way that it was itself this hybrid being, this thing that had been designated as monstrous. I think lots of the monsters we see across folklore are a kind of manifestation of fears. So in this case, that anxiety about being seen, but they're also layered with other things. So we often see... Monsters given aspects of queer identity, right? If you look at any Disney villain, they're a bit fay, or they're camp, or they've got a <laughs> drawling voice. Um, so, coming from that perspective, we have to ask: Why has this been this creature been designated as a monster? Um, and what might it have to say on the subject?
2: It really dredges up a lot of ways in which myths and stories can give us new tools to engage with contemporary history talking about sumptuary laws and public stall police stings and and that kind of thing
1: yeah I think stories give us the tools to address these things they make them a little bit strange and so in some ways make it easier for us to see them
2: yeah Vanessa what do you think This piece is so rich
0: and dense. It definitely warrants multiple listenings. Uh, I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to read an early draft uh, before this podcast. And I was so struck by the fragmentation uh, of these voices, this, this sense of multiple selves. And what strikes me about the queer context that Jack speaks about so beautifully is how we can extrapolate that and think about the other in general the, the the people in society that are always desired but also feared and i think about the the notion of the femme fatale uh, which has its root in figures like Medu- the medusa right this this beautiful but scary woman who had a head a head full of snakes that also could kill people with one look or, or froze people with one look uh, and i think it's really interesting the figure of the monster and how it really encapsulates this simultaneous fascination and, and revulsion and how we don't quite know how to negotiate that as a people and I think we can see in how queer culture has been increasingly commodified you know we are both uh, fascinated and, and jealous of the the freedom and the opulence and beauty of drag culture of of transness of gender nonconformity these things that have basically informed anything that's truly exciting or uh compelling about popular culture i would argue and yet we still are desperate to to package it to control it to suppress it in any way possible because uh we want non-conformity but but not to the point where we actually start to dismantle anything or disrupt anything <laughs> you know so um this this piece for me really embraces the the not quietness of these cultures you know that the fact that it's such an abstract um, image-based piece, um, you know this this loosening of a conventional narrative or a narrative that's only from one perspective. I feel like it it really encapsulates the the defiance and the refusal to conform that comes with being a part of these communities, these cultures. It's just, it's just fantastic.
1: And I think there's definitely an anxiety there, as you talk about commodification no one wants to be considered shallow but we also have to interrogate why are these things shallow is it shallow to want to think about how you dress how you act Mm. how you look or is that coming from a very straight position where it doesn't matter because you're already in power or you already look like everyone else and look like you want to look Mm.
0: And I love how you played with that and and use humor to explore that that line. I have these cheekbones, and I'm not afraid to use them, which is so typical of that uh, that that camp, almost uh aggression isn't quite the word, but it's definitely a I, I dare you to say anything about the fact that I'm so gorgeous, that I'm so stunning, that I'm so feminine. You know, the idea of um one's glamour as a weapon, as a defense mechanism. Uh, I think you explore that really well, and as you say that duality of mirrors how it's um both a reflection of the self and a deflection of the self depending on how you use them in which direction they're facing there's so much to mind there about anxiety and and how we play with it and try to distract other people from the anxiety we feel yeah so much to go into could i ask you about the the way that you manage to distinguish between the two voices and what you feel their different registers are. What do you feel that Luca can say that Prince can't and vice versa?
1: I was really drawn to the idea that this basilisk, as a kind of um, voyeur of history, had this wealth of knowledge and had this wealth of vision across time that it could bring to this story. One of the things I'm thinking about a lot is social media and contemporary ideas of the image but I'm also very wary of turning it into like a Black Mirror episode you know technology's (laughs) gonna kill us Um, (laughs) we see I've seen so many articles about the age of the selfie as this Mm. new thing that we're all deeply shallow and Mm. I think we have to be aware of those dangers and we have to interrogate how we're using these things, how they're serving us and what they're taking from us, because at the end mm. of the day on social media, you're the product. Mm. Mm. But equally, mm. there have been self-portraits for as long as there have been people. There have been people making Absolutely. stamp prints, there have been people drawing themselves, looking at themselves. We're always interested in this, and I don't think it's anything totally new, but we should stay alive too. dangers that are in that as well. Mm.
0: I couldn't agree more. I've just finished reading Holly McNish's most recent book, Slug, and she has a great section in it about how the selfie is often derided because it tends to be the preserve of young girls, you know, people in communities that finally have access to ubiquitous and cheap camera technology and can document themselves um, in a way that rich people always could, because as you say, they could Hire a, a a portrait artist to paint them, right? And she talks about how in a world where so many of us don't have the the resources to decorate our homes to our own likings or have a garden or or, or anything really, um, the one thing that most people can do is make their face look nice in the way that they feel um, suits them and take a picture and gain some validation or approval for that from the internet. And yes, there's a lot to be unpacked about that as a compulsion, but I do think that, uh, there is a lot of sexism, uh, homophobia, perhaps even in this disdain for the selfie. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's a lot more
2: complicated than people would give credit to. It feels like not coincidental that there's a massive panic about the sort of moral degradation of society at the moment where like the means of self-representation has been like somewhat democratized or as you say, that it comes bound up with like lots of more dubious stuff about how we are the product when we put stuff on social media.
0: I feel like Jack touched on this aspect of uh, dating apps as well, um, subtly in the piece, uh, this this notion of scrolling, um, trying to find connections on Grinder or whatever app it may be, Tinder, Bumble, Hinge, whatever your poison is, and what that does to our psyches as well. And it's interesting because of course, Grinder was the first dating app in essence. So again, it has this queer history, this queer origin story, this notion of of seeking connection in these online spaces. So there's a lot that Jack manages to pack into such a short piece about all these different ways that uh, queerness has had to exist and proliferate, but also obfuscate itself. Because there is that safety, isn't there, of looking online and, and being able to be covert if you're not out or if you're you're not um, in a place where you would necessarily go to a gay bar or a gay club or whatever. But then you could argue that that has contributed to the erosion of those live spaces or those um, physical spaces as a means of uh, building community so there's there's so much that you can think about reading this piece as far as how technology intersects with 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 queer culture with queer community um so much stuff but only
2: so many hours in the day <laughs> absolutely i feel like i could talk to you guys for the next fortnight about the huge number of layers that you managed to plumb in this poem. But actually, I think that is a lovely moment to pass over to Vanessa and hear the story that you've chosen. Okay, I'm going to try my best
0: to succinctly describe the origins of this story. <laughs> you've got a story. task ahead of you. <laughs> yes, uh, because there's a lot of cultural context I'd like to give, particularly because this isn't a, a story or a myth that comes from the, the Greek tradition or, or any other Western tradition. So I feel mm. it would be remiss to not acknowledge the, the difference in that regard. Um, it's a, a Ugandan origin myth story. So to make a lazy comparison, you might think about it as something akin to the, the Adam and Eve story from the Bible. Um, the idea of the first man and uh, his experience on the earth. And it's called Chintu, um, that's spelled K-I-N-T-U. And we pronounce our K's like Chuz in Luganda. And it centers uh, Chintu and the wife he eventually um, meets and falls in love with Um, and the trials they undergo before they are able to enjoy the fruits of the earth um, and raise children and thus create a population. Um, Chintu is initially just uh, exploring the earth by himself with a cow and then his wife sees him from the seat of heaven and decides she wants a bit of that. (laughs) <laughs> um, and comes, comes down and collects him basically. We like it, a woman who knows what she wants. Um, but then her father is not so keen and decides that uh, Chintu must perform a bunch of tasks to prove his worth and to, to earn her hand. What I found most interesting, what I decided to focus on for mine is the, the figure of Warumbe, who is the wife's brother. And he is not too happy at all about this union between uh, Chintu and his wife and uh, is dead set on ruining everything and essentially comes down to earth from heaven and starts taking away their children and and killing them one by one. And there's some loose allusions as to who Wurumbe is or what he represents. Some people see him as a figure of death. Um, His name changes according to which iteration of the myth you read. But I was just interested in him as this figure of death, Um, again, what we would loosely call the monster of the story. And this connects nicely with um, Jack's piece, thinking about monsters and how we are drawn to them and horrified by them. So yeah, Warumbe fascinates me as a figure and I wanted to give him a voice. I wanted to give him a position and to think about the role of death in our lives. So this is is the resulting piece. Warumbe or voice notes from death. Now let's make one thing clear, you're nothing special. You, you are the fifth journalist in three days to beg for an interview. I've Googled you, you have the stance and stare of a hustler, I like that. But you write gossip, greasy food for loose-lipped aunties, huh? Is this what dead trees bleed their sap for, Cyril? Now imagine if you told real stories, shook the ground with the truth, but you've correctly assessed the market. What do they call it? Supply and demand, that godless gospel of the West. The truth is uh, unfashionable these days. If you open up the world like a lemon, not everyone can drink the juice without wincing. I hear your wife is sick. It's a sorry thing to see the ones you love suffer. Please send them my well wishes. For all I know, you write stupid stories to pay for her medicine. I shouldn't burden you with my assumptions. Let me exchange them for revelations instead. So, what kind of man are you? God-fearing, foolish, devious? To whom do you answer? I have belonged to no one and nothing for a long time. Even the sea and sky turn their backs like traitors. But it makes my job easy. I slip between spaces. The shadows are my allies. There are vengeful people who love to threaten me, flex their undercooked muscles, but they don't worry me. You ever see a gorilla fight a plume of smoke and win? I don't have much use for stories. They were always my sister's specialty. She made sure the tale of our family was about her kindness, her love, her triumph, and me, well, You know what they say about me. But I'm not some small, small villain. I'm a villain on a veranda, drinking a cold soda. I'm enjoying the sun and the sound of reggae music from the house next door. Just an hour ago, an old woman fell from a bodder-bodder and I helped her up. I held a cloth to her leg where a sharp stone had opened the skin. She said I reminded her of her dead son. Her eyes reminded me of milk gone bad. I could tell these days were her last and the sky did nothing but shrug me and the blessed chintu we're not so different at the start i liked him he was quiet strong content with the humble fruits of his labour him his cow and his thoughts now people want to be like the pale man whose fingerprints pepper this land still we want his phones and his cars, and his magic pills. Does a proud man clothe himself in his own silence, gild the knife made to kill him in gold? It seems so these days, but Chintu lived simple. He respected the earth, and the mysteries beneath it. It was my sister that set her sights on him, set this whole mess in motion. Where lust goes, trouble follows. She was the precious one. Pretty and simpering and sweet, at least to everyone but me. She was always allowed to roam freely, go down to earth and wander amongst the people there, and there was Chintu. And all of a sudden, heaven wasn't enough for her. I'll never forget father's face, like a dog robbed of its tail. Now on this part of the story, at least, my sister and I agree. First, we asked him to suck the blood from a killer bee. When he showed us his stained tongue, unstung but dyed red, we sat up straight. Then we told him to weave a basket from the clouds that could hold our weight. Now, clouds are not like thread or dough or coins. They resist human meddling. Poor man, wrestling with wisps, the prologues of monsoons. He'd wring them of rain till his fingertips wrinkled. The day grew dark but he kept going and he did it. A beautiful basket, patched in midnight and midday. Some parts of it even sparkled with stars. The bastard. He was showing off. We stood inside it and it held steady. Now at this point I was fed up, ready to settle things with fists. But father spoke with him, alone. It was father who sent him to the bottom of the Nile, not me. I remember the glow of the pearl in his mouth when Chintu returned, the one my sister still wears in her left ear. No one comes back from those depths without paying a hefty price. I know this. Like I said, me and Chintu, not so different. You know Nambi's favourite food is fried fish, She'd beg me to let her come when I went to the river with my net. But all she would do is sit there and cry. She couldn't bear their bodies gasping, the shock of their eyes that never close. Father would scold me for scaring her. But would she not always eat with us in the end? Her cheeks greasy, picking the fish's ribs from her grin. There is one thing they say about me that's true. I do live in a hole. It's deep and dark. It smells of iron. You forget, after some days in there, the texture of daylight. You can hear the worms and beetles moving through the earth. You can hear history, the time before humans and the time before cells and the time before time, too. It's where my thoughts breathe. There's a Facebook group of people. They take pictures of the holes they find around the city. This is where death lives, they tell each other. One woman is convinced I live inside her latrine amongst the literal shit. So I've made a fake account for fun so I can add my own lies, why not? I say death is at the petrol station, the vegetable market, the doorway of the brothel, the president's passenger seat. But it's true in a way. Death is everywhere in the pearl of Africa, where a pale man once prized our country open like an oyster shell. You asked me about the children. And this, this is the truth. Their first son? His face. It was mine. Like I was looking in the mirror of the Nile, the curve of the boy's mouth, the upward turn of his eyes. Nambi would never let me hold him. They took themselves down to earth to make a life of their own, grew food and gathered grain, the boy growing older, every day looking more like the brother she scorned. You are a rare thing, a smart man. So you know that nobody belongs to anybody. Even I struggle to accept this. I did not take him, like she says. I simply walked, and he followed. It's as if he knew. I walked down and down into the darkness, calling his name. I wept inside there where no one could hear me. They all come eventually. Men, women, children, kings, beggars. I go inside with them and come back alone. Some of them are grateful. Their faces break open with relief. The worst are those who cling to the edge. I used to drag them by their legs or their hair. Now I just wait. Like a crying baby that learns it cannot conjure its mother from the darkness. They find silence and then peace. Something even sweeter than sleep. It's like your wife. I'm sure you think it's merciful to keep her in that bed clinging to her failing body. You think it's love, the natural way to follow life to the bottom of the ocean. But there is no pearl in your mouth. You cannot drink the blood of a killer bee and survive. You made me in the shape of a man who speaks so you can accept the unacceptable. Do not come to me asking for what's no longer yours. Just do what you've been brought here to do. Tell the truth. It's the only thing that will outlive you.
2: Oh, God, what an astonishing reading. Thank you so much for that. This poem digs so deep into ideas of truth and lies and the way in which we lie to ourselves and the slippery boundaries in between those things. Can you tell me a bit more about your thoughts around that?
0: Yeah, I think uh, stories are a really interesting demonstration of, of willful lies or... The mechanisms we use to soothe ourselves, you know, we can trace that right back to fairy tales and um, the, the the Disney stories we sit our kids in front of. Right. Which extol virtues and beliefs about, you know, human kindness prevailing that are, are, are really nice, but also completely antithetical to the world <laughs> when you <laughs> actually look at it with the clear, cold eyes of an adult. And I think we have a lot of mythologies around the meaning of life and what it means to die and, you know, where we might go after death, if anywhere at all. And, you know, you could argue that this whole building of, of, of religion or anything adjacent to it, you know, even if we're talking about a more new age notion of the spirit or the soul that lives on, all of it is built around this anxiety of what does it mean to be alive, particularly if I'm just going to die at the end of it, if everybody I've ever loved is going to die at the end of this. and um, so to personify death is interesting, isn't it? Because it's still trying to place death into something recognisable, something that can speak to us, something that can justify itself. So yeah, truth and lies, um, the efficacy of lying sometimes in a in a world where the truth can sometimes be unbearable. Um, this is all really fascinating and storytelling is perhaps one of the most effective and seductive ways we have of lying to ourselves.
2: <laughs> uh, Wurumbe seems so so vibrant in his defiance of all the different ways in which he's like misunderstood, especially by this like journalist character. He seems to be the sort of stand-in for us, the kind of listening audience or whatever. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit more about what, what drew you to R- Wurumbe?
0: well I think just as Jack was drawn to the basilisk this very slippery monstrous character that pops up everywhere but is also quite elusive doesn't even have any definitive shape you know some people see it as a snake some people see it as a snake slash cockerel which I can't even imagine is that like a snake with feathers a snake with a beak I, I can't even I can't even picture it but it's 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 strange right and um you know there's so many different Figures of death that we've seen in our mythology, whether it be the Grim Reaper, whether it be even, you know, the witches that um, occur in a lot of our uh, common fairy tales and stories, you know, these 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 old hags that essentially represent um, age, which represents mortality, right? And it's interesting mm-hmm. that that always comes in the shape of a woman, not a man, but that's another story. Um, yeah, I think Warumbe was such a an obvious way to go because... Death is the 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 big unanswerable question, right? And I think any story worth its salt is trying to grapple with those unanswerable questions. So Chintu and, and Nambi were representing this notion of the beginning of life on earth, you know, the first humans, this 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 sense of endeavor of populating the earth, of, of greenness, lushness, um, growing food from the ground, and all of that is gorgeous. But I'm interested in on what happens on the other side of that, the thing that is inevitable, but that we run away from. Perpetually, which is death, right? Mm. And uh, I, I wanted to to kind of advocate for for the necessity of death as a concept that we hold in our heads, because it it offers a profundity to life that it wouldn't have without death, in my opinion. So, you know, I I I believe that in myself, and I I wanted to imbue the story with some of those beliefs and and, and personify them in this character of Warumbe, who's quite swaggery, um, who in one breath doesn't seem to care about people, but also has this slight longing to be understood, to, to connect to people, which he finds impossible because he's burdened with this role that is essential, but um, ostracizes him from the rest of the world. So yeah, I, I find the push and pull in him as a character really interesting. And yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's really exciting to have the challenge of making something as, as, as ominous and scary and repellent as death, seem funny, seem interesting, uh, seem warm, and seem relatable, identifiable. So that was that was what I aimed to do when I sat down to write.
2: Mm, and you talk about him and Shintu being not so mm. different.
0: Yeah, life and death is the cycle, isn't it? Which is, you know, definitely not my sentiment. It's quite a trite one, but it's it's facts. You know, that wonderful idea of, you know, for every person that leaves this earth, you know, there's there's multiple people that are, that are coming into it. And, you know, I think the basic principles of ugh, godliness, which I know is quite a loaded word, but when I say godliness, I mean um, this sense of, of value, worth, love, that, you know, God, at least in the Christian sense, in theory has put into every human being. I think when you think about that, as a guiding principle, um, there is something very unifying in not only have we all had the the honor of of being born and being alive, but that we are all leveled and humbled by the fact that we're all going to die. Mm. Um, you know, I think that's that's a continuum of the same logic, the same basic sort of anchoring, and I I find that very beautiful. You know, because it it, it brings everything into such stark perspective. All the posturing we do. With the little time we have on this earth all the accoutrements and 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 silly shiny things we accumulate and all the stupid games of status we get caught up in and it's like yo none of that is going to stop you from dying like (laughs) you know (laughs) so i think it's really really pertinent to remember that on this journey that you have on the earth
2: absolutely and and jack your poem seems to be similarly fascinated albeit in a different way with this sort of creeping presence of death and mortality what's your what's your take on uh, Wurumbe?
1: One of the things I was struck most about him is that he's not cruel, right? He sends his well wishes to the reporter's wife. he helps a woman In he says that he helps a woman from who's fallen in the road. He could have been this figure that's like very much on the side of death and killing people taking people but he's kind of got a cool patience about him mm, mm.
0: yeah i'm 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 really glad you picked up on that uh i don't think roombay would have been very interesting if he'd just been a cartoon villain that just blithely Went around being violent and callous and cruel. I don't. I don't think there's there's much to be interested in or engaged by in that idea. I think it's far more interesting to accept that even the most dark and scary of characters might have these glimmers of uh, kindness and compassion because I think that's true of human beings in general. Yeah, and I and I and I wanted to explore that complexity uh, and the fact that. You know, there are people in this world who have to deal with death all the time, you know, whether it be doctors, whether it be undertakers, you know, people whose daily lives are confronting this, you know, this this other end of life. And, you know, we would never call those people, you know, cruel or or, or callous, even though they probably have to make some very difficult decisions when it comes to life and, you know, whether to prolong it or, you know, when to call it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I wanted I wanted Rumbe to be a complex character to show all the light and shade of um, being a human. And also, you know, there's this whole notion of a good death, which I've been hearing more about as I've explored death as, as, a, as a subject. Um, you know, the idea that you could have a, a good death, uh, a peaceful death or a very painful death, a very difficult death, you know, there's, there's death isn't just this sort of flat monolithic experience either, you know, you could think about it with the same complexity as you do life. Um, so I think Wurumbe reflects that complexity, as well as I had the ability to as a writer.
2: And that sounds like a rather poignant moment on which we shall have to leave it. So thank you so much to our wonderful guests, Vanessa Kisule and Jack Bigglestone, who have regaled us with deathly demigods and legendary half-reptiles and many wonders besides. Uh, this has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. I've been your host, Eleanor Penny, and until next time, sweet dreams and thanks for listening. This has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. Our project producer is Tom McAndrew and our podcast producer is Maya Bosworth. This project is funded by Arts Council England and supported by the good folks at Spread the Word. We have a book out also entitled Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. It's illustrated by the artist Inquisitive and published by Studio Press. To get your copy, you can go to our website endoftheworldpodcast.com there, you can also explore all our previous episodes and find out more about our writers and their stories. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Goodbye World Pod.